Sometimes they take a little while. We are officially on the last week of bad computer. It is coming tomorrow. It is in Twinsburg. If it doesn't come here, I will drive, break in, and bring it home myself. Uh, so, so far, so good. Amen. Well, congratulate the, these folks as, you, as they leave this morning. Make sure in the lobby that you see them. Uh, and let's lend them our support and encouragement. Because in order to lead in the church, the church has to be in support of that leadership, right? We, we promise to subject ourselves to, to leadership. And so it's our job as a congregation to pray for those who the Lord has appointed as leaders over us. Amen? Amen. Well, let me ask you, so if I have a few names uh, that I throw out to you, just kind of raise your hand if you know who these people are. LeBron James. There's always like one boo somewhere in the back, right? Like, how about Will Smith? John Lennon from the Beatles, right? See, these are people we know. Like, we have these people in life, whether it's in the music industry or, or other types of artists or famous athletes or movie stars or whatever they may be. They're people in the world that kind of everybody knows, right? You could go to many countries in this world and LeBron James would be a household name. Like, he's a big deal. There's places where basketball isn't even significant, but people know who he is, right? You can't go really anywhere that doesn't know the Beatles, to some degree at least, right? We have these famous people, and in Scripture, we have famous people too, and we've been talking about them over the past few weeks, right? When I, when I say Moses, most people today, I'm going to go on a limb, we're getting to the point where this is no longer true, but most people today, even outside the church, if you were to mention a name like Adam or Moses or David, they might have some type of clue at least who that is. And if we are in church, for those who have been here for any length of time, not just because of the past few weeks of a sermon series, you know who these people are, right? They're the greats of the faith. They are famous in scripture. Entire books and chapters are devoted to just these people, right? But there's one guy who gets very little press, even though he's one of the most significant kind of contributors as we talk about this idea of Jesus being greater than. And that's a dude named Melchizedek. Raise your hand if you know exactly who Melchizedek is. A lot less hands than that. <laughs> like a third of the people. Raise your hand if the first time ever that you heard the word Melchizedek was today. It's okay. Be honest. Right. Melchizedek is a nobody in some ways. Right? He gets very little press in scripture. He actually really only gets one specific section where he's talked about just a little bit, but we don't know a whole lot about him. But yet, Melchizedek is one of the most important figures as we look in the Old Testament foreshadowing Jesus Christ. And so as we wrap up kind of this time before Christmas Eve of preparation, of thinking how Jesus is greater than all others, we can't skip Melchizedek. And by the end of today, you will go home and you will know who Melchizedek is. Melchizedek is mentioned one time directly. He's referenced much later a few times, but he's mentioned only once in Genesis 14. And in Genesis 14, this is what we see. Let's take a look. Maybe. Hey. After, this, after his return from the defeat of... Anybody want to take a stab? Chador Laomar. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we, we learn just a few things. Abraham is returning home from having conquered some kings and he rescues Lot. And on his way, he meets this King Melchizedek, who we don't know anything else about up until this point. He sh shows up seemingly out of nowhere. We don't know his origin. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who his dad was, which in scripture, you know, genealogies are significant. So he has kind of seemingly no beginning. He just kind of appears. And there's a few things that are important. Melchizedek, the name, actually means king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem, which means peace. So he's the king of righteousness of peace. Sound kind of familiar? Right? We know some other dude who might be the king of righteousness and peace. Right? But the names there are significant. And Salem is what will become Jerusalem. Right? The word Jerusalem literally means city of peace. And so this is a guy who is, we know two things from this, or three things really, from this one little set of verses. Number one, he is a king of Salem, which will become Jerusalem. And number two, he is called a priest of the God Most High. And then three, Abraham has tremendous amounts of respect for this guy. And how do we know that? When he's blessed Abraham, Abraham turns around and gives him a tenth tithe. If that sounds familiar, later on when we have the Levitical priesthood, right, they receive a tenth tithe to the priesthood so that they can operate and continue to function. Right? And so here Abraham acknowledges the priesthood of this guy that we don't really know named Melchizedek. And so there's some questions that come out of this. How is this guy a priest in Genesis, number one, and how is he a priest and a king? Both of those are really, really weird things in the history of Israel, right? So first, the priesthood. How, how is it possible that a guy in Genesis 14 is a priest? Because what we see is in Exodus, the very first priesthood gets launched when God selects his people. At the time that Abraham encounters Melchizedek, he hasn't even had offspring yet. Right? The Lord promises Abraham that there will be a people that will come from him that will be as numerous as the stars. But none of that has happened yet. So we don't even have God's chosen people established. They're not even in Egypt, let alone enslaved by Egypt, let alone freed and made God's people. Right? If we go far beyond this, we get to the point where Aaron eventually and his sons are consecrated as the first priests. And so how is it that there is a priest before there is even a people of God? Right? This guy is something totally separate. Right? And if we look at the priesthood, right, one of the things we, we note is that the people that were priests, starting with Aaron and on, were the descendants of the tribe of Levi. That's why we the Levitical line of priests. The book Leviticus, right? All those words come together. Right? And so, if we are going to acknowledge someone as priest in the Old Testament, generally they have to come from the line of Levi. Well, the line of Levi hasn't even been established yet. So this guy is not an ordinary priest. This is not someone who is a priest in the Levitical line that we have of succession because the line hasn't even come to fruition yet. And second, he is called both a priest and a king. And we'll get to that part later, but that is highly unusual. You generally didn't have kings be priests and priests be kings. 
Those were separated offices in the time of Israel. Right? There's some problems with this. And so what we see is Melchizedek is a very unique anomaly. Right? And what's even weirder is that as we go through Scripture, Melchizedek gets connected to Jesus. Right? Here's Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so here's the issue. Jesus is called a priest, right? If we look at the book of Hebrews, he's called our great high priest. We addressed this a little bit when we were looking at, at Moses and what the priesthood looks like for Jesus. But Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. And so how is it that Jesus can be a priest? How does this make any sense? And how is it that somehow Jesus is from this order of Melchizedek? This is one of the more confusing things as we look through scripture. It's this nobody that gets like three verses in Genesis, and then all of a sudden as we get to the Psalms, and as you'll see later in Hebrews, he starts to get connected to the Savior. And here's what we need to grasp to, to move ourselves in the direction where we can understand what this all means. We need to understand the exact nature of what sin looks like in our lives. We like to think of sin as tangible. We like to think of sin as the things we do or think. Right? Today I've sinned many times. Right? But there's a quantitative kind of nature to how we think about sin. And because of that, there's also a quantitative nature to the way we think of punishment for sin. Right? When I sin, I deserve punishment from God. Right? And the Lord has a wrath that is poured out because of that punishment, and then we get into the gospel. Sometimes we get to it a little bit quickly without dwelling in that sin. But here's the thing. Sin is far more pervasive than we want it to be. Right? Sin is not something that we just do or think or act upon, but sin is a state that we are in. And it's an inescapable state. And here's what's important. It's a continuous state. We love to think of the gospel in transactional terms. And, and it is to some degree. But if Jesus right now showed up here and paid off your debt immediately, by the time you left the building, you would be in debt again because you are continuously a sinful person. Right? And so there's no like single payoff. Right? We talk about the gospel as being, you know, we stand at the gates, we deserve the wrath. The, the, Jesus comes in, he pays the penalty, says, I paid for this person, all right, and then we're good. But he, here's the thing, sin is something that just continues. We are sinners now, and if we're freed up, we will be sinners again, right? It's not like we're somebody who's a million dollars in debt, and someone continuously pays it off. It's far worse than that. There's no level of singular payment that can happen. Our sin is perpetual, it's natural, it's continuous, and so is the wrath of God that comes with it. And that's important to know, and that's a harsh truth, but we need to understand this. 
because we need to see how the priesthood of Jesus affects our sin nature versus the regular priesthood, right? We needed priests in the Old Testament. They came about, they were called into being for a very specific purpose. They were to be the people that come in between God and all the other people. They're the mediators. They are the ones who pay for sins. They are the ones that offer the sacrifices so that we, as a people of God at that time, might be forgiven, right? That was the job of the priest. He would continuously be an intercessor of the people. Well, the problem is that priests were temporary. And that sin, as we just said, is not temporary. And so by the time we get to the book of Hebrews in chapter 7, which is our main text, and it's a large chunk for this morning, we start to see how this all works itself out. So let's read together. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We see Psalm 110 quoted there. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And here's some of the key. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. All right, take a deep breath. It's a lot. If you remember nothing else in this whole set of verses from 11 to 25, remember this one last verse. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, since he, is always, he always lives to make intercession. Right? The Levitical order of priests were not sustainable. Why? Because they died. If the wrath of God doesn't end, right? it's a righteous anger that continues to burn against sin. So long as there is sin in this world, the anger of the Lord will burn against it. So, so long as we are sinners in the sight of God, the anger of the Lord will burn against it. And so we need a continuous intercessor and priest. We do. 
We can't just go once and done. We can't have the Lord just pay the penalty. It's not like we have this much debt, and if we can get the balance to zero, then we're set. It is an ongoing thing, and none of the Levitical priests could serve in that role simply by nature of the fact that they died. And so Jesus comes, and Jesus is said to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, because Melchizedek in Scripture is described as this person who has really no beginning and no end, no genealogy, so to speak of, right? And so Jesus, likewise, has been from the beginning and will always be. So Jesus, as opposed to every other priest out there, is the one priest who continues on forever. And that matters because we require intercession for our sin forever. We are sinners. Apart from Christ, that is our identity. And it's not a one-time transaction. It's like when you have your wedding day. You're married now. You're always married. Always, 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 always. It's not like, oh yeah, we did that. No, it's a continuous thing. And so the Lord continuously intercedes for us. We lost our slides. If we could restart that. Why does this matter to us? I think it's important that we take some of the theological things that we think about and that we internalize them on a personal level, right? Jesus is not just this kind of theological being as we talk about. He paid and that's great and we worship him and we come and sing songs. But right now, Jesus is actively, right in this moment, interceding for you. There is a wrath of the Lord that is burning against us. Right in this very moment because of the sin that is a part of our life. And and Jesus is in heaven sitting on the throne right this very second. Interceding continuously on your behalf. He is holding back the wrath of God that you deserve. And he's doing it now and he'll be doing it ten minutes from now and an hour from now and days from now. Over and over and over and over again, without ending. And then one more thing. We talked about how Melchizedek was this king and priest. We spent the last few weeks thinking through how Jesus is greater in various ways. He's greater than Adam because he is able to succeed where Adam failed. He's the greatest prophet. He is the greatest king. He is the greatest priest. And we could say, well, that's great. We've established that in all these offices and all these roles that people have filled throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is greater. But here's what makes him truly marvelous. It is that he does all of them at the same time. Even if somehow you were to have an argument about who the greater priest was, Jesus is still doing all of these things. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. All at once, in one person, wrapped up. As our prophet, he speaks the word of God to us. He is the one who communicates the Lord's truth to us through the word, because he is the word, as John 1 tells us. Everything we need to know about who God is, is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. That's why he says, if you know me, you also know the Father. He comes to us. Hey, it worked. Let's keep going. Can 
was almost doing better without them. Uh, let's, not, let's not even worry about it. Um, so he serves as our prophet. As our priest, we just learned, he makes intercession for us. And he does it perpetually and he does it perfectly. Right? The priests were able to offer sacrifices, but the priests themselves needed sacrifices offered for themselves. Jesus doesn't. He is in every way our perfect priest, and he is our king. He rules and he reigns, and he puts the enemies of the Lord under us, and he says they are a footstool to us. He is the conquering king who, as Revelation promises us, will one day defeat enemy, defeat Satan, defeat evil, and triumph over it once and for all. He is in every way those things to all of us. Right now, he is acting as your priest. Right now, he is acting as your prophet. He is communicating God's word to you. He is speaking through the word to you, and he is causing the Holy Spirit to make it known in your life, and he is growing you into his likeness, and he rules over you. The Lord is protecting you. Jesus, as the king, is defeating enemies and evil right now for you. That's the God that we serve. And by the way, just as an aside, um, when, we, when we think about this wrath of God and the continuous outpouring of it and Jesus has kind of the restraint, one of the things that we have a tendency to maybe do is to think of God as the bad character in the story, right? Like God's the evil one in the back doling out wrath and Jesus is the superhero going no. But we have to remember something. God is the very person that sent Jesus, right? Because he wants us to be able to draw near to him. And so that's the wrench in that theory, right? God is not the evil one. His wrath is justified and righteous. But he wants us to know him. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to spend eternity with him in worship of him and to demonstrate his glory in the world in which we find ourselves. And so he sent his son Right? Jesus isn't coming against God and saying, not today, God. Jesus is doing what God is asking him to do. He was actively sent as his son to come and to live among us and to die on the cross and then to rise again and conquer death as king, as prophet, and as priest. And so this Friday night, when we come into this room in the evening and we worship and we sing the songs we all know and we light our candles just remember that that is the God who we're coming to celebrate. Because before Jesus came, all we had is types of Christ. All we had is Melchizedek's and Moses's and David's. They were all these characters who somehow got the job kind of done, but never quite measured up. And so think about this through the lens of an Israelite on that night before Jesus was born in Bethlehem with years of no hope and just having all these various types of leaderships and intercessions, none of which really got it done or lasted in the long term. Right? You're just wondering, when is it ever going to end? Is there ever going to be one that succeeds where all these people have come short? And the answer is, yeah. And we're going to celebrate them five days from today. So get ready. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that indeed you are greater. That you are greater than Moses and David and Adam 
and Aaron and Melchizedek and any other character that scripture or the world today could throw at us, Lord. Each one of them, no matter where our faith and leadership lies, is just obliterated by the beauty and majesty and awe of who you are. And so we thank you. We thank you that you've come. We thank you that this year we can come together in person to celebrate the announcement of your birth. That in the midst of darkness and in the midst of hopelessness and in the midst of struggle, you came into the world to say, enough. I'm here now. I am everything that you could ever have imagined and hoped and dreamt for and more. We thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we could come together and learn and grow more into your likeness. And Lord, we ask that you would take us forward. That we would live with the spirit of hope and anticipation over the next few days as we await the celebration that is to come. Be with us. Be with your people. We love and praise you. And all his people said,